Tonight's program is Cancer Still Emperor, How Innovative Research and Treatments Offer Hope for a Cure. Uh, this gives us a very particular and interesting look at the 2009 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. It also looks at the groundbreaking advances in cancer research, treatment, and prevention that have emerged during the past decade since its publication. Before our friend and partner, Margaret Ann Bollmeyer, who is president of the MCV Foundation, introduces our distinguished panel this evening, we're going to launch tonight's program with a short video featuring Ross McKenzie. Uh, he's no stranger to most of you in this room, and Ross is the retired syndicated columnist and editor of the editorial pages of the Richmond News Leader and Richmond Times-Dispatch, and he'll join us immediately after the film. But thank you to everyone who supports the MCV Foundation, or hopefully both the MCV Foundation and the Virginia Historical Society. We couldn't do this work that we do without you. So we appreciate you being here. Enjoy your evening. ago, I put the afternoon newsleader editorial pages to bed, first edition deadline 10.20 a.m., and went to play noontime handball. At 2 p.m., I had a routine physical at McGuire Clinic on Parham Road with my internist, MCV-trained Hilton Almond. Toward the end of that physical, as Dr. Almond pressed around my upper abdomen, he said, you're not pregnant, are you? Not at last check, I said. And he said, I think you don't need to go downstairs for a CAT scan. He was suspicious of something he was feeling near my spleen. He was thinking possible lymphoma. The scan and a subsequent biopsy confirmed it. That was 1989. I was 48. My journey began with the MCV refined instinct of Hilton Almond and flowed through Whitey Robertson and Walter Lawrence to the informed and scrupulous monitoring of Harold Chung. Along the way, there were countless other MCV physicians, clinicians, and steadfast healing nurses, such as nurses Brenda and Lynn during cancer number one, and Patricia and Angela during cancer number two. Without that full cavalry riding to the rescue, and without, let's see, North Hospital, Dalton Clinic, Radiation Oncology, the Bone Marrow Transplant Unit, Massey, and the Stony Point Clinic, no further dreams in this script would have come true. I wouldn't have known the past trifecta of decades, nor the joys those 30 years have contained. None of our son's college years and careers, none of their marriages and children, none of the life 
My wife and I have lived holding hands, none of her windrush beneath my wings. No sunsets or moonrises, no crashing surf, no riffling creeks, no breezes soughing in the birches and pines, no getting lost in books at night, no waking in the morning and refusing to let the old man in, no learning from our Labrador how to roll on one's back in life like a happy dog. 30 or indeed 20 years ago, what remained would have been buried or sprinkled, and that would have been that. So, thank you, American Medicine. Thank you, especially MCV Medicine. Doctors and nurses and clinicians all. You gave me, you life saviors made possible my past 30 years. God bless you. Mere appreciation doesn't cut it, nor gratitude. This, this is love. Ross McKenzie. Talking about the um, not admitting uh, impediments to the marriage of true minds. This is not really uh, Robert Herrick either talking about uh, the liquefaction of the fair Julia's clothes, or it's, and it's not uh, Allie McGraw and Ryan O'Neill in Love Story. <laughs> but it is, it does, it does express some small measure of uh, the feelings I have for this institution that has allowed me uh, 30 more years on this cosmic orb. Just uh, unbelievable, the turn of events that led us to MCV. And this event occurred, as the video noted, and the longer piece uh, stipulates, uh, with Hilton Almond, who uh, discovered this during this routine physical, this lymphoma, and uh, asked me if I was pregnant, and well, turned out we had something else going on. And uh, I called up my friend Whitey Robertson, neighbor across the way in Goochland County, and I said, what, what, what do we do here? What, what, what's this all about? What's I, you know, here, here's the editor who doesn't even know what lymphoma is. He said, you need to see Walter Lawrence. He said, I'll work it out for you. So he called Walter, and Walter came in and pronounced me a lucky guy because I, was having lymphoma, I had lymphoma when uh, we were beginning to treat lymphomas with chemotherapy and uh, not with... Um, uh, surgery. He, he assured Ginny and me when we were meeting with him in my hospital room out at McGuire Clinic that, uh, that uh, he had operated on about 500 of lymphoma patients and the surgery had failed in all cases. 
And, uh, you know, we, we didn't see how that was very good fortune. But he said, you're going to do fine. We've now got a, we've now got a different uh, method to uh, treat, with, treat you guys, and we're going to do just fine. So anyway. Um, it's become almost a cliche, personal cliche, for me to say that uh, both verbally and in print that I've done so well on my checkered medical journey because of three things, a benevolent lord, an angelic wife, and, and outstanding medicine as practiced at MCV. I cannot introduce you to God, though he, he's everywhere, but my, angel and my angelic wife is right down here. And in... And in an MCV Foundation-assisted version of This Is Your Life, uh, I can introduce you to a number of the MCV-trained or MCV-practicing doctors and nurses who helped me along the way. Hilton Almond, uh, who, as we said, uh, discovered this uh, cancer, the, my first cancer the, initially. Uh, Whitey Robertson, longtime friend is here, pulmonary thoracic wizard. Uh, who, who steered us to Walter Lawrence. Walter himself is here. You're going to see more of him on the panel. Uh, told us I was a lucky guy, as I said, because I was having uh, this episode when I did. Lynn Fisher and Brenda Bremner are both here, who treated me, uh, infused me during cancer number one. And Saul Yanovich, who uh, treated me during cancer number two. Saul has come down from from uh, Bethesda to be here this evening. <clears throat> they are all here, and I would ask them to please stand for a round of recognition, uh, but for them. <clears throat> but for them, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We lack only Craig Howe, who treated me for uh, cancer number one, and the nurses who treated me for cancer number two, and John McCarty's <laughs> colleague, Harold Chung, who has followed me like a hawk uh, for 17 years. So thank you all. Abiding love to you for the life, you and your caring and your genius have allowed me to live. Now, I'm an artifact of an earlier cancer therapy hour. In lymphoma, I just missed the era of surgi surgical ineffectiveness and was treated by radiation and chemo. Oncology then transitioned to targeted drug therapies and now to immunotherapy consisting of gene alteration and cell transfer. Buck Rogers stuff, or yes, rocket, rocket science. I think we're teed up to hear about some exciting things about the latest magic in cancer therapy being performed right here in River City at MCV. So to begin that phase of the program, it's my uh, pleasure to introduce Margaret Ann Bollmeyer, president of the MCV Foundation.
Well, Ross, you've made my job pretty difficult because <laughs> such an eloquent and heartfelt and meaningful story and so much about what we're going to talk about tonight. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for bringing people together. Um, and we'll, go, we'll move on with the evening. So thank you, Ross, very much, and all of the people who supported him all, over time. Um, I also want to thank Jamie Boskett for his um, kind words and for uh, partnership with the, the MCB Foundation and for hosting the e this evening tonight in this lovely auditorium that is just a wonderful place to gather. I also want to recognize, as Jamie did, Austin Brockenbrough. So Austin is a lifetime trustee of the MCV Foundation, so he, he remains on both boards, um, both of our organizations. And I also want to say that he did bring us together to create this partnership, but I also want to be sure that you know he really had the idea for this, and he had the um, idea that if we came together, that there would be a lot of people interested in the intersection of health and history. And I think he was inspired by the book that we're going to talk about tonight, The Emperor of All Maladies. So thank you, Austin. Thank you for that. And being gathered here tonight, I also need to recognize another member of the MCB Foundation Board who's been um, quite uh, critical to this organization, uh, Charlie Bryan, who's here tonight. Charlie, thank you so much. Former president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society and a member of the MCB Foundation. Thank you, Charlie, for being here. And I do want to acknowledge that we would not be gathered here tonight without the Virginia Sergeant Reynolds Foundation support and underwriting for this event. So again, Austin and for all of the members of the board, thank you so much for the support um, that we have to do this event. Now, many of you are very well familiar with MCV Foundation, um, but for the few of, the, of you who may not be, um, MCV stands for Medical College of Virginia. The Medical College of Virginia Foundation was founded in 1949, so we are celebrating, we're at the end of celebrating our 70th year. Our mission is to inspire and steward philanthropic resources for the MCV campus at VCU. We currently manage um, or have assets under management of over $600 million, representing over 1,700 funds that support all of the five health science schools, the hospital, and the Massey Cancer Center at VCU. We are just so pleased to be here on our third program in this health and in history um, partnership. So to get us started, I will not be introducing the full panel. I'm gonna leave that to our moderator, but I'm going to introduce him. And that is the Dean of our School of Medicine, Peter Buckley. Peter became Dean um, just about three years ago in, in January of 2017. He came to us from the Medical College of Georgia, and he is a psychiatrist with a specialty in schizophrenia. And in January, he will become the interim CEO of VCU Health and Vice President of Health Sciences on the MCB campus at VCU. Peter? Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. And you can hear me okay? Yeah, fantastic. It's a real privilege to uh, 
be here as I look out at this room, I see nothing but young people. So I'm so glad to be. Your laugh, I didn't laugh. And Ross, your remarks in the video were really spectacular. Thank you. And you bring home uh, to us, which we all know that there's not a family in America that's not been affected by cancer at some stage. And so this for all of us is personal. And I was yesterday in Philadelphia, and there's a remarkable painting in Philadelphia that's of relevant to this evening's discussion. And it's, you'll know it, of course, Walter, it's the Agnew Clinic. And it's a painting of somebody having uh, breast surgery, and uh, Dr. Agnew is uh, in his clinic with the latest treatment, and it's called a Halstead uh, mastectomy. And it was a pretty blunt instrument for a condition that was poorly understood, but it did save lives in its day, but not enough and with a significant amount of disability. <clears throat> so that was yesterday. And this morning, I got up and I was watching TV. I was kind of, there was this impeachment thing happening. And I uh, listened to a very interesting uh, advertisement. It was for a new drug for cancer, which was interesting in itself, but they talked all about whether you were hormone positive, hormone negative, what the particular genetic profile was, and they talked about PO, personalized oncology. And I thought, amazing, from yesterday's Halstead surgery to now something that's tailored to each individual person. So that's what we're going to be talking about this evening. And we have a staggeringly esteemed panel. I'm going to introduce each person. The first person is, uh, it has been mentioned that our care is good at, at MCV. The first, first person is an iconic figure at our institution, Dr. Walter Lawrence. Please come up, Walter. <clears throat> Walter is a professor emeritus in the Department of Sur Surgery, and he's also director of emeritus of the Massey Cancer Center, having been the founding director of the Cancer Center between starting the Cancer Center between 1975 and 77. And he's a former past president of the American Cancer Society. We could scour America to have somebody more dignified than Walter, and we wouldn't find them. So thank you. Thank you, Walter, for being here. <laughs> the next person on the panel is a remarkable scientist, and that's Steve Grant. Come on up, Steve. And Steve is Associate Director for Translational Research at the Massey Cancer Center. He got his uh, training. He's a physician by training. He got his training at Mount Sinai. And he's been here all his career. He's been a scientific beacon for the Massey Cancer Center and for our faculty. And his work, as you'll hear later, focuses on novel treatments for uh, malignancies, particularly cancers like uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The final speaker and then the panel is Dr. John McCarthy. Come up, John. And John is another remarkable colleague. 
you want to believe the story that he followed Steve, because he got his training also at Mount Sinai, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, <clears throat> John is the holder of a very distinguished chair, the G. Watson James uh, chair. And we have these chairs who honor uh, previous colleagues. And they're very important because they enable us to bring the kind of talent uh, both in, in John as the G. Watson James uh, chair and Steve as the Olson chair. And that helps us bring this kind of extraordinary talent to our, uh, to our city and to the Commonwealth. John's focus is on uh, immunotherapy. And uh, he'll tell you a little shortly about some of the exciting work. And so what we're hoping to do today is give you a sense of how far we've traveled in the time period that uh, represents uh, what Ross well uh, illustrated in his video to what's happening today. So we're go I'm going to sit down, and then I'm going to ask some really nasty questions. And I think, whoop, and I'm going to steal your water, Walter. Oh, that was not good. Yeah, better not. <laughs> so, uh, so nobody has a better perspective on how the journey cancer has traveled here uh, than Walter, who's been at, at the forefield of our, uh, our cancer arena for decades. So Walter, I'm interested in, in asking you uh, your thoughts on, on the book. What did you think about it? You're an avid reader. And so tell us what you think. Well, thank you, Peter. Before I comment on it, though, I'd like to thank you and the MCV Foundation for carrying on with this wonderful chance to talk to these people about advances in cancer. And especially when I thank Ross. Where, where is he? There he's over the rice. Yeah, there he is. Thank Ross for his. That's the most wonderful endorsement this Massey Cancer Center and MCB has ever had. So we're very excited about that. And then, and then I also have to dispel one little thing. You said I was, you acted like I was important. <laughs> and I wasn't. Actually, I came here from New York uh, from a cancer center, but the person who really got cancer going here is somebody that some of the people in the audience may remember. It's the late Susan Millette. And she was sort of a one-person cancer center here wow. and uh, get, should get a lot of credit. The, the other thing that I'd like to comment on before I say anything about the book is how proud I am of the Massey Cancer Center. As I told uh, Gordon Ginder on more than one occasion, uh, a, a gang of guys here and girls got together and formed a little cancer center. And then he came along and really built it up into something yeah, really important and exciting. And I was just so proud of what he's done. But I don't think he'd have done it without Becky Massey. Yeah, that's true. And we got to give her a lot of credit, too. But I'd like to. Now. How many of you, I'd like you to raise your hand, how many of you have really read this book? I hope it's the homework for the book. <laughs> well, I, I, I think this is a fabulous book for a whole bunch of reasons. Well, first of all, since I came from a cancer center in, in New York before, well, here, I had my first career there, uh, 
I, I think it's, uh, it's amazing how he covered so many things, and talked about so many of my friends and classmates even, and, and told about things that I never even knew. Like Janet Raleigh, who, did found the, who discovered the first oncogene, Philadelphia chromosome. Uh, Ernie Winder was my roommate when I was a fellow there, and he's the guy that wrote the original paper, or at least letter, I guess it was a paper now, on, on how lung cancer, which was once very rare here, but then was our number one killer, he wrote the letter that drew attention to the fact, surprise, that it was due to tobacco. So it, it, there are a lot of little things. And this book, the, if you, those of you who will read it, and I hope you will, because I've, I've read it twice. I thought it was terrific. And uh, it, uh, uh, it, it just, it doesn't cover institutions. It doesn't mention the Massey Cancer Center, but then it doesn't brag about other institutions either. It talks about people, and lay people as well as scientists, and it's, a, it's just an exciting read. It reads like an exciting novel, and I can't urge you enough to read it. When I, I read it when it first came out, which was about seven or eight years ago, and then when I got a chance to be on this neat panel, I thought I'd better read it again. <laughs> and, and I got so much out of it reading it the second time. So I, I would say it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book and, and one I'm uh, hoping that you will all get a chance to read. Now, I wonder, the book, I might point out one thing about it though. It came out in 2011 and of course, uh, there's a book that came out last year that Harry Tallheimer kindly gave me when he found out I hadn't read it by Mr. Graber called Breakthrough. And it's one of the things we're going to hear a lot from our two basic scientists here tonight about the breakthrough of immunotherapy. And, uh, but, and I think in his prologue of his, of his second book, he sort of gives a little dig to this uh, book about, uh, we're talking about tonight, but I can tell you, this is so complete a book and such a wonderful story that I just hope you all hurry home and get one and read it. Great. Were you paid royalties or anything? For oh, yeah. They, it's on paperback now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let me turn to John. Uh, John is uh, an expert specifically in transplantation. And that was something that was pretty risky and was confined to uh, people with really severe right. uh, illness. So how's that changed over time? Well, I actually participated in my first transplant during my internship uh, back in 1986, not long before Craig Howe and Saul Yanovich set, it up, set up the transplant program here at MCV in 1988. And at that point, it truly was, I'll use a football meta metaphor, the Hail Mary Passive Medicine. Uh, when patients really had failed to respond to many other therapies, uh, they were giving, given essentially what would be lethal doses of chemotherapy to their bone marrow and hopefully to the cancer. We would give them back someone else's bone marrow and immune system and then basically support the patient to get them back together. It was tough. It was difficult. Many patients did not survive the process but many people did. And from that start, 
Um, the, again, we use the concept of, you know, we didn't create all of these things ourselves. I didn't, my team didn't, but we stand on the giants of people who came before us. And so when I came to, you know, by the time I came to work under uh, Saul, um, you know, we, the oldest we would consider a transplant for a fam with a family member transplant was 55. The oldest we might consider for an unrelated, the, the national donor pool was perhaps about 50. And that held true until about 2005. That's not all that long ago. Mm -hmm. And finally, we're seeing that these new innovations about how to find better matches, how to better find that best match between a, a, a recipient and a donor, how to do better supportive care, how to try to hone in that, that response we want. Transplant is all about trying to teach the immune system to love the patient and hate the cancer, right? It's almost like if you had a family member move into your house, you know that they would probably make it their own to a certain extent. And we want that to happen. We want that donor to move into the patient's house and say, I love this place, but I don't like that lymphoma. I don't like that, and it, I'm gonna make it get out of here. We gotta keep that focused on that purpose, and we've gotten better at that. So now, believe it or not, the, the group of patients that are the fastest growing patients receiving transplant in the United States and internationally are people aged 60 to 80. Interesting. Okay. We're now using it not for people who have no more options. <clears throat> We're now using it because we want the standard of care to be better. We're used, so for example, people with multiple myeloma, one of the most common blood cancers uh, in older patients. It's now part of standard of care to receive a bone marrow transplant as a way of extending their time of remission and to do better. Um, so I think this has been a, a, real, a real change to be able to take this very powerful tool and really change it from what really kind of felt like a club to turning it into a very, very much more fine scalpel to be able to find a better balance between that risk and the benefit. Well, that's a huge change. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's move over to uh, Steve. So, so Steve, uh, Obviously, Nixon declared the war on cancer, and that followed with, with massive federal uh, funding, including the formation of the Na National Cancer Institute. So how has all that come to today, where you can get up in the morning and hear about a drug that's a, got a molecular fingerprint to it? Take us through that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there have been enormous uh, changes and developments since uh, the announcement of the war on cancer, uh, uh, many, but not all of them, have been directed at uh, deciphering uh, the, um, the molecular signature of, of cancer. And uh, in the 70s, that area, that field was in its infancy. Now, uh, we can, it's almost routine. We're, we're able to dissect and characterize the, the molecular genetic aberrations in an individual patient's uh, tumor. It, it's literally a, uh, a fairly routine um, uh, uh, event at this point in time. And that provides enormous potential benefits, but it's also associated with very significant challenges. Clearly, if we know a particular uh, oncogene or tumor suppressor gene 
um, has undergone a mutation and presume that that is responsible, at least in part, for the development of the tumor, it gives us an enormous weapon or an array of weapons to use to specifically design therapeutic regimens uh, uh, which target the particular pathway uh, that has been disrupted by the, uh, by the mutation. And there, are some, there have been some spectacular uh, successes. Walter mentioned Janet Raleigh and, and the identification of the, uh, of the oncogene responsible for chronic myelogenous leukemia, the BCR able oncogene. Uh, and that led to the uh, exceptional uh, success of a targeted approach to a, a defined tumor. And we now have drugs which specifically attack the kinase that is responsible for chronic myelogenous leukemia. And in the uh, ensuing decades, other tumor types have been discovered which also uh, respond to the uh, targeted approach. For example, lung cancer with EGFR mutations or ALK mutations we know with a high degree of certainty whether those patients will respond to a particular drug. But the challenge is uh, the, the ultimate success of this approach is yet to be fully realized. And the, our ability to replicate the situation with CML uh, has been uh, a very difficult, a very difficult process. Tumor cells have a way of finding uh, uh, mechanisms of escape from that targeted therapy. Uh, in addition, even more threatening is the possibility of the tumor cell developing alternative pathways to uh, tumor cells. Morphing in a way. Right, morphing. They are prone to genetic instability, mm -hmm. which leads to additional mutations which confer resistance to the initial therapy. So uh, in sum, uh, we, we're in a position of enormous promise being able to dissect out the molecular uh, genetic landscape of individual tumors allowing us to individualize therapy, but we still have a long way to go in achieving the, the outcomes that we're ultimately looking for, which amount to cures. And uh, I'm sure we'll discuss some of the, the options for that uh, uh, in the next uh, right. few minutes. You know, I was struck years ago with, uh, I don't know whether you remember the story of Angelie. Uh, Jolie, mm. who had a, a mm -hmm. mastectomy, although she didn't apparently have cancer, but she had the hereditary and molecular signature that she would develop cancer. And so that was an example putting to practice what she described about mm. the um, kind of molecular signature and how that guides treatment, in her case, pre preventative. But we know it's not just drugs, isn't that right? And surgery's had a role as well. Tell us about how surgery is about. I'm glad you mentioned surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, as everybody here in the audience knows, the, the main three treatments for cancer are either radiation, drugs, so far anyway, and, uh, and the third is surgery. But uh, for what we call, and for some of these things like leukemia and multiple myeloma <coughs> and lymphoma, uh, surgery is not even feasible because of the diffuse nature of the problem. But most of these things we call solid tumors, like the lung, the stomach, the breast, are things that have for many years been treated only by surgery. When you stop to think about it, they didn't even discover radium and Rentgen uh, rays until around the turn of the century. 
And it, w it wasn't until after World War II that we had any kind of knowledge of any anti-tumor drugs. So surgery's been around a long time. And so when they asked me to be on this panel, I thought, my golly, I'm, I'm so old. They ought to get Harry Bear. He took my job. Uh, I just ought to talk about surgery now. But anyhow, I, then I realized that, that I'm the only guy that's been, lived long enough to been around long enough to see the whole history. Yeah. So you're going to get it. No. <laughs> now, actually, uh, back in uh, the time of Hippocrates, we have a... We, we Fast forward a little, will you? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they didn't even think you could treat cancer. In fact, they mentioned it. But I think the first person that ever took a scientific approach, and not one like we do now with randomized trials and all sorts of things like that, it w was this person that he referred to, Peter referred to earlier, uh, uh, William Stewart Halstead. And of course, he was our patron saint in surgery, especially since he was the first chairman at Johns Hopkins, where I was an intern, where we had to worship him. Gifted man. And, and his logic, he was a good scientist, and his logic was that, and let's take one cancer, let's take breast cancer, it's the easiest one to talk about in this regard. He uh, noticed clinically that the breast cancer would sometimes spread to the lymph glands under the arm. And he came to the conclusion, uh, without any real studies, that uh, the way to solve that problem was to take out not only the whole breast, uh, but this, the lymph nodes under the arm and all the tissues in between. Uh, and as Peter mentioned earlier, that's pretty deforming and can lead to things like swollen arms and everything. But the practical fact was he was the first person who ever had any real cures of breast cancer. And he, he overwhelmed everybody by having half the women he operated on very carefully and, and uh, uh, with uh, tedious technique. Uh, and about half of them were cured. So uh, it, it, it became our our catechism from then on, that the larger the operation, the larger the cure. And that was, and we all believed that. Like I, when I think now, I don't know how we did that, but even when I moved here from New York in 1966, I remember giving one of those main surgical conferences on not only do it like Dr. Halstead, but to make it a little bigger even. So, and this whole idea of, <coughs> The bigger the operation, the bigger the cure became an international thought. And, uh, uh, it, uh, and then along came a, a, a friend of mine from Pittsburgh who just died the other day at 101, Bernie Fisher. And uh, we had just started a surgical service here. And since we were friends, he said, I want to start some trials. And I, you guys have a lot of cases, so why don't you get involved, uh, well, I better get involved, although I think this Dr. Halstead was, was the guy. Uh, and I think Bernie Fisher's uh, uh, thought was, in God we trust, but if other, other people have to have data. And I was like, oh, what's this data business? So we had, we, about that time, we really, as a nation, began to use uh, randomized trials. 
And the first trial really was, it was a big jump to us, but in retrospect, it really wasn't. He just showed that maybe you don't need to take out quite as much, maybe just the whole breast. And we found out that if they hadn't already spread somewhere, the results were just as good. Oh my goodness. The surgeons and people were a little skeptical, but we went ahead with another trial, which really led to today's treatment, which is, uh, just very limited, non-deforming surgery of the breast to just remove the tumor. What a change. We went from more is better to less is better. And it was, and how did we do that? Well, we did that because we had these other adjuvants I mentioned. We had dr drugs that we could give in addition, so the alamode to the surgery, but, and we, we could prove that a small surgery with some uh, x-ray therapy afterwards, now that x-ray therapy had been born and refined, uh, just as good results as this horrible surgery before. And, and that whole idea of less is better was really occurred in other sites as well. At the same time we were doing these deforming breast operations, I got to admit, we were doing very deforming head and neck operations as well. But by this time, as time went on, with the refinement of uh, other modalities like radiation and chemotherapy, we were able to really end up with qu quality of life much improved. So I think uh, we've, we've come a long way uh, in this whole business, and uh, it's it's been striking. Now, have we improved the results? Well, we'll talk about that later. I'm not sure, but we sure have improved the, the treatment and the acceptance of treatment by combination with other modalities to make our surgery so much more acceptable. And nowadays, it's, a lot of these things are almost outpatient procedures, whereas before, we were we were doing what I think were almost awful things, and what amazes me is that we all believed it was the right thing, which shows how it takes somebody like Bernie Fisher, who was the, uh, oh, uh, the surgeons in the country thought he was evil. Yes. Yeah, but, but now William Stewart Halstead is evil, and Bernie <laughs> Fisher is <laughs> terrific. Thank you for that. That, that was an extraordinary tour of a large a body of knowledge. Thank you, Walter. Now, Walter mentioned the book uh, Breakthrough, which is about immunotherapy, which right. is arguably the hottest area. Right. He took us through 30 years, huge, hundreds, thousands of papers. You're going to do the same thing and tell us about immunotherapy. Sure. <laughs> um, Go for it. So, um, I guess sort of an extension. I mentioned how essentially a, what we would consider a, consider a traditional bone marrow or stem cell transplant is essentially giving someone a new immune system that is not going to tolerate having that cancer hang around. Um, we've actually been able to refine it to the point where we're even using transplant to treat certain kinds of autoimmune diseases. In fact, um, in January, we're starting our first uh, planning visit um, to start a trial um, using transplant to treat multiple sclerosis. Wow. And so that's just a, that's a small step. 
But there are bigger steps. You know, um, let me step back. I won't pull down the the, uh, the slide set and give you a PowerPoint poison, but let me talk a little bit about why does cancer happen, not from the standpoint of genetic defects and molecular changes and so on, but there's another partner here, and that's the immune system. How can we bring the immune system to be a better partner in all of these other innovations that we're bringing, bringing to bear on the cancer problem and treatment of disease? Well, a couple things. For example, we partner with uh, a member of um, one of Dr. Lawrence's uh, colleagues um, to actually have them remove melanoma tumors that are metastatic. And we extract the lymphocytes that have already said, you know, I'm not sure you're supposed to be here. Take them out, they're expanded, they're energized, and they're reinfused back into the patient. And we're actually seeing some very, very amazing responses for people with metastatic melanoma. That's an example of, essentially, this is not all about being an oncologist. It's not all about being a, um, a, a, a non-surgical uh, person, that this is essentially a cross-disciplinary kind of way, and we can get at these problems much better when we start expanding our horizons. So how does cancer ha help happen? Well, there are many ways, but the three way is either the immune system does not recognize the cancer as being there. Second is there might be cells there that recognize that something is there that shouldn't be there, but there are not enough numbers of them, so they're overwhelmed. And then the third, as I use a lot of analogies, is that much like Dorothy and, and crew going through the uh, poppy fields going to sleep, that the tumors very often have certain capabilities of being able to put the immune system to sleep so it can't work effectively. So we can counter that with a couple of things. There are some great agents called checkpoint inhibitors that essentially is like giving the immune system a Red Bull, but it's, it's essentially nonspecific. And so just as you get responses to the cancer, you also get other potential autoimmune side effects. I mentioned with our allogeneic transplants, sometimes that immune response is off target, and sometimes that new immune system tries to reject part of the patient that have nothing to do with the cancer. And that can lead to long-term and short-term side effects. So what if we were able to take the benefit of cells that would recognize their own? Well, how can we create this? Well, we can take your own lymphocytes, and maybe their day job today is Remember that last flu shot you had? And you all had your flu shots, right? Okay? All right. Um, they remember that last pneumonia you had. They remember you had that little <coughs> nascent colon cancer, but it took care of it. And that's their day job. They're looking around for that to occur again. Well, we take those out. And now we have a problem. We have a lymphoma. Okay? So, Ross, if you had come to us now, listen up, because this is what you would have, would have experienced. This would have been your next next therapy. Essentially, we just as now we all have smartphones that we have to upgrade the app to make it do what we want to do when, say, we're traveling in a new city or a new country, we want to download the map. We upgrade the app. Well, we upgrade the app, the immune system, by literally genetically reprogramming these T cells, these cells of your own immune system, to now not like a particular protein that is prevalent on lymphomas just as yours. CD19. Unfortunately, who never named these has no poetry in their souls, but <laughs> that's what it's called. So these cells are then expanded. They're excited. We give the patient a very low-level chemotherapy that essentially makes room in the immune system. And then we replace 
those cells in there and they start to go to town. And an example, young children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia who had basically a life expectancy of five years of, uh, of two years of less than 5% were treated with this therapy, 90% of them went into remission. And 80% of those were long-term cures, okay? With lymphoma, in patients who may have had anywhere from four to seven different therapies, including transplant, were given this therapy, 60% of them had an overall response rate. And even if their response rate was partial or they relapsed shortly, uh, if they relapsed within the next six months, they were now eligible for transplant that they weren't eligible for before. So now we've got a therapy in patients we were normally sending to hospice care that we're now giving what could effectively be curative therapy. That's the power of immunotherapy. How did that happen? It's because people invested in basic science. People invested in the ability to understand the biology of the cancer from the surgeon that removed it, that didn't just necessarily send it off for this is what it is, but also participated in that trial and was sent off so that we can better understand the biology driving this or the characterization of this. So we could put out, like in those cop shows, a bolo for the cancer, a definition of what it looks like, so that we can identify that unique target and capitalize on that and use our own immune systems and augment it and teach it to be even more effective. That is what we're looking at now. We're using it now for lymphoma, at, uh, ALL. We're using it for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We are starting a trial in solid tumor with uh, sarcomas. We are going to be doing several trials in multiple myeloma. And we look to essentially, I'll talk about more about the future um, with where we go from here, because this is really the first coconut on the reef of really truly building what we hoped for in immunotherapy so many years ago and cell immunotherapy to really be a true partner with many of the other promising modalities to make everything much more effective. That's just awesome. We're Absolutely. excited, we love it. We love it. Um, now, Steve, not everybody is as fortunate and some people respond and some people don't respond. Tell us what we understand about treatment resistance and the molecular signature of that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> resistance um, is the uh, bane of uh, essentially all patients with cancer and uh, those attempting to treat them. Um, cancer cells are, in, in a sense, highly Darwinian. They're survivors. And um, uh, when you combine that with their gen genomic instability, cancer cells find a way to develop uh, um, and, and find escape routes from even the most potent and effective targeted therapies. There are many ways in which uh, tumor cells can become resistant. Uh, they can um, uh, develop metabolic abnormalities that, uh, that render the targeted agent uh, ineffective. They can develop additional mutations which uh, prevent the targeted agent from attacking and disabling its um, uh, uh, receptor or its, uh, its kinase activity. 
in addition, uh, cells can develop alternative pathways. They activate alternative pathways that substitute for the um, pathway that has been disabled by the uh, targeted agent. Um, uh, actually, the most uh, uh, challenging um, uh, problem in, in drug resistance is cells are initially addicted to a particular pathway, and if we disable that pathway, they are uh, sent on a pathway of self-destruction, apoptosis, uh, programmed cell death. But tumor cells find a way to uh, lose their addiction to that pathway. And you have to think of entirely new ways to induce them to die. Um, there are so many ways that uh, tumor cells can become resistant. Uh, I think it's, it's naive and unrealistic to think that we can uh, uh, overcome this problem with a simple, uh, single approach. And uh, this may mean bringing in alternative approaches, actually multiple alternative approaches. And in that way, uh, 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 immunotherapy can represent an alternative approach to circumvent uh, a problem of uh, tumor cells that have become resistant to an initial targeted agent. So this is arguably the major challenge in oncology today. And I think the future, in the future, we will develop new paradigms of treatment in which we treat tumor cells early on with multiple agents, including some that reduce the uh, uh, likelihood of development of resistance, uh, and multiple modalities. And uh, I think uh, that may take a while, but I think uh, ultimately if we want to deal with the problem of resistance, we're going to have to think of entirely new strategies. So I guess that's partly why the federal government promoted uh, focused research through cancer, designated cancer centers. And, yeah. and you were there at the beginning of that. You launched our cancer center. So take us through that and, and kind of what has that meant? What does NCI designation mean? And how did that come about, Walter? Well, back about the end of World War II, our, our National Institute of Health got the National Cancer Institute going. And there were a couple other uh, categorical cancer centers, but most universities weren't really worrying about it too much. And so, the, but there was a lot of scientific ability in all our medical schools and, and uh, universities. So it, that's when the idea of having uh, the expertise of the clinicians and the scientists that at universities to get more involved in cancer. So that's when the whole idea of getting NCI cancer centers going. And then, and so that's our own dean here, Kendall Nelson, whose name's on that building yeah. downtown, uh, was, he was bugging me as soon as I got here. We gotta have a cancer center. He'd been hearing about it. So, and this is also what led to President Nixon's uh, war on cancer. Yeah. Now, I think, uh, we were thinking more simple-minded then. We were thinking, all we gotta do is find a better drug or a combination and that'll fix it. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's taken a lot more understanding of the process of cancer and these mechanisms that John and, and Steve have been talking about for how the cancer center is, cancer cell is outsmarting us. Uh, but, uh, 
we, so we started, they, they had several kinds of cancer centers. They had a few just basic science that were only working on the mechanisms. The others they called clinical cancer centers, and that was most of them. Uh, and that's what we became. They, they had to have both science, basic science and clinical activity in cancer to be a center. And then they had this wonderful thing called a comprehensive cancer center, uh, which included prevention and uh, things of that sort, which is really what the American Cancer Society was selling, you know, yes. when you get down mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. Uh, and so when we put in our core grant, with the, with the way they, they, they said, well, you need extra money, but you have to prove that you have a lot of good scientific grants. Yes. So when we put in for our grant, we put in a lot of stuff about prevention and all that stuff, but we didn't, we'd become a comprehensive center because we didn't have any funded research in, in uh, prevention or things of that sort, which I always argued incorrectly, it doesn't make any difference, comprehensive is just different. Well, as it turns out, I think we were focusing a little too much on just finding a treatment. Mm -hmm. And we've really, most of our progress now, that John and Steve have been talking about, is based on a lot of basic science that may not even have been heading for cancer research. And, and the basic scientists at the time that President Nixon started this thing uh, were arguing, oh no, we have to invest more in science in general. And of course, th those of us who were clinicians, and we're sort of dumb, I think, Oh no, we got to get tar more targeted research. And as it's turned out, most of the things that, wonderful things that John and Steve have been talking about have really been more towards what's going on here? What, what's the mechanism? Yeah. And some, some of the ad big advances have come from unexpected sources of good basic science research. So I'm sort of a convert now I'm sort of now believe it's important to be comprehensive. But the, 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 the nomenclature was really more based on wh where you had scientific research grants that were already peer reviewed by scientists at the uh, National Cancer Institute. And, and so, uh, and I'm sure w with what you're hearing now, I'm sure we're gonna be a comprehensive cancer center which I must admit, I poo-pooed in for many years because I figured it was, we were really, I wasn't really thinking in a grown-up way, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, before I am public say you're not grown up, I'm not gonna <laughs> go there. Uh, well, I am old, so there's no question. <laughs> I can buy that. Let me ask Steve, from your perspective as a, as a scientist, what, what's the benefit and the significance of an NCI-designated cancer yeah. center? Well, um, Peter, it's enormously valuable from a number of standpoints. Uh, by virtue of being an NCI-designated cancer center, we have an established link or nexus with not only the NIH and NCI, but multiple other cancer centers throughout the country, designated cancer centers, uh, 60 four or so at last uh, count. And that allows us, there are many ways in which uh, being designated allows us to interact with and, and uh, take advantage of developments uh, uh, 
uh, emanating from uh, other cancer centers, but it also gives us an opportunity to disseminate our work and our discoveries to the uh, 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 scientific community at large in, in this country and internationally. It gives us access to uh, multiple uh, mechanisms of funding for exciting new discoveries. Uh, we also gain access to certain uh, unique laboratories uh, at the NCI, which are available really primarily to designated centers. Uh, in addition, it allows us from a clinical standpoint to uh, team up with many other institutions to allow clinical trial, laboratory-based clinical trials involving novel agents, the sort of cutting edge uh, modalities and agents. And uh, for example, as a concrete <coughs> example, there is a uh, mechanism, it's known as a UM1 mechanism, wherein a limited number of consortia, and we're part of one of the uh, consortium um, uh, for the, uh, this uh, mechanism, to carry out trials involving NCI-sponsored agents. Um, uh, again, often cutting edge, highly novel agents. And trials can be conducted through a large network known as the ETCTN, the Experimental Therapeutics Clinical Trials Network. And it's open only to NCI-designated cancer centers. So we are able to um, uh, conduct trials emanating from this mechanism. But uh, conversely, uh, several of our trials that developed here at the Massey Cancer Center in the last couple of years have gone on to become ETCTN trials that are open to all the other 60 plus uh, designated cancer centers. And uh, finally, being a designated cancer center is, is really an essential um, um, uh, aspect of being able to recruit uh, clinical and basic scientists from other cancer centers as we attempt to strengthen and build upon our capabilities here, uh, many of these individuals will only consider going to an, another uh, uh, designated So they go center. down the street, mm -hmm. they bypass us mm -hmm. if we did not have NCI designated. Ab absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, another Sorry. key thing, you know, when, when they first started, anybody and his brother could call his little office a cancer center. And so in a way, by saying NCI, it meant we had legitimate yes. peer-reviewed research going on that made us uh, different than the guy who just said, oh, I got a cancer center now. Yes. And just by way to bring you up to now, we've just hired a new cancer center director after uh, two decades and more of Gordon Ginder's great service. We've just hired a Dr. Rob Wynn. And if you think what our colleagues have said is not true, <laughs> I was at a meeting last week and I stared at another dean who was desperately trying to recruit Rob Wynn <laughs> and I was able to go, nope, he's coming here. Uh, because of everything that Steve said, the designation is very significant. We're going to, I think, I'm going to ask uh, Walter just to kind of give us, you promised this, that you'd give us kind of the landscape of how we've done. You'll give us kind of a a, yeah. a forecast of how we've done in terms of truly making inroads in cancer. And then we're going to go to some questions uh, from, okay. from you as audience. Well, <clears throat> well actually, uh, we've talked about wonderful things. But I think if I were in the audience, I'd want to know, are you getting anywhere? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and, I, and I didn't know what the answer to the question was. 
But fortunately, my old buddies at the American Cancer Society have some data on <coughs> yeah, deaths track. per 100,000 mm. people for 1990 and 2017. That's a sort of recent. Yeah. And I wrote them down because I thought they were sort of interesting. And then I want to interpret them if I can. Please. One is lung cancer has gone down 31% in terms of the percentage of deaths per 100,000 people with this awful, our number one killer, which incidentally was way down the list when I was a medical student. Yes. So it's, it's been coming up a lot. Another one, breast, has gone down, in terms of mortality rate, has gone down 39%. Prostate, 50%. Uh, and, and you'd say, well, gee, how about stomach? Well, actually, stomach seemed to disappear a while back. What's happened to all these cancers? Was it the new treatment? No, those are exciting new things for the future they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I think it's that old American Cancer Society thing of if you know what, some, what the cause of something is, you could prevent it mm -hmm. or you could identify early. That's what they always said. And, in screening, and when you stop to think about it in lung cancer, I think it's mainly been the decreasing in tobacco use that's gone along. Now, there are some new possibilities for treatment, like uh, this very focused radiotherapy for very early mm -hmm. lesions that are picked up in high-risk people. In uh, breast cancer, obviously, there's, there's improvements, but most of them, although some of them are due to treatment, most of them are early diagnosis because of our interest nationwide in screening asymptomatic people, the uh, preventive task force always poo-pooed our prostate business. But when I looked over the data at the VA hospital, over a period of time since PSA was started being used, we changed our stage from advanced stage prostate cancer being the overwhelming majority to finding we had a lot more curable ones. So I, I don't know that treaters may decide they did a good job, but it, we made it available by early diagnosis. So that's why the, I think the comprehensive cancer center approach of trying to get things, either find out what, what made things happen so that we can get rid of that cause or correct it, or at least early diagnosis is really the answer. It's not as exciting sometimes right. as the treatment, but it's probably very important. So that's why I, I'm very excited about the fact that we're expanding our preventive activities at the Cancer Center, and, and we have a, a program going there now, and so I think we're getting somewhere. Thank you. Okay. Imagine to be at the top of your game for decades, just what? decades. <laughs> Extraordinary, my friend. Thank you so much. We're going to take some questions from the audience. We have some roving mics, and, uh... and Peter will answer them. <laughs> now, my name is Bill Bug, and uh, gosh, it's amazing some of the things you guys are doing. It's just really amazing. And of course, uh, the effectiveness of some of these new things is, is wonderful to hear. But I was wondering, what's it doing to the cost of the treatment? 
Oh, that's a, that's a great yeah. question. That's an outstanding question. The question is cost. John, do you want to take, yeah. take that? So being the one who spends the most health care dollars yeah. around here on the stage, um, yeah. transplant, just to give you an idea, the average cost of a, transplant, a bone marrow transplant from someone else is about 500 to a million dollars. Um, the cost of <clears throat> just the drug for the CAR-T at this time is approaching $400,000, and the supportive care and monitoring after um, runs anywhere from a million to a million five. I recognize there are a lot of, there's a lot of preemptive um, prenatal care that we could deliver for those dollars. The idea, though, is to uh, not just cure the cancer and leave a patient non-functional. The idea is to give someone back the years that they have lost. And not to sound like an accountant, if I only am giving someone a year or so, that's, that's a pretty expensive treatment. But if I can give that person 5, 10, or even 15 years, then it doesn't become that much per year that that person has actually been able, has cost the healthcare system. Now I think the idea is this is the beginning first high-tech technologies are always very expensive. There isn't a lot of competition just yet, but there will be. Third, as we learn better how to do this, an example of one of the things we're going to be exploring here is that we may make our own CAR T cells at VCU, at Massey. And there, instead of paying a company half a million dollars for a drug, we may invest for the cost of the drug, we may actually buy two machines that will actually help us make them at probably a cost of around $100,000, which is still not small, but it's certainly a lot less. So I think that as we get smarter, as we get better, as we, as, as Stephen was saying, not just rely on this brute power of this particular cancer, not every cancer therapy that is new gets positioned for the people who have no other options. Okay, so right now, you're seeing the cost and the, and the delivery of care to people who have been through multiple therapies and therefore may be more fit, less fit and more frail. I bet the cost will go down as we're learning how to better partner with other agents and when to position these treatments at the right time earlier in therapy where we won't have that drastic cost. And prevention. Prevention是最好的。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对，没错。对
by Dr. Lee and Hertz, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, uh, and he was smart too. He did another thing. He kept measuring something in the blood to make sure that the patient continued to get treatment even though there was no more uh, evidence of the Basically tumor on Basically a pregnancy on test could detect yeah. Yeah, that yeah. same hormone. Yeah. And then he, because they thought he was malpracticing, they fired him from the NGI. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful story. You can read about it in the book. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to take one more question, and then we're going to have the opportunity Here, for more. Uh, Dr. More Lawrence, you're the true legend in the room. I see you out at the VA hospital fairly frequently. Can you t just tell us the significance of the partnership between the VA and MCV, how both benefit from it? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, every time I bug every dean that comes here, because every medical school always looks down their nose a little bit at the VA. And, and the VA, when we get down to it, is over a third of our education opportunities here at the medical college. And there's a bunch of wonderful people out there, and the patients are super. We veterans, that is. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, this is one dean. This is one dean that knows that, because since he's been here, he's really gone to bat for a lot of things at the VA, and we're proud of you. Well, I have to tell you this morning, you may, you may not know this, but this morning we had the first ever cancer center director at our VA present at our leadership mm -hmm. meeting, talking about this partnership, Dr. Ron Gartenhausen, who just joined us from Maryland. So we're going to make that partnership that you have overseen, we're going to make that stronger and stronger into the future. You're doing well. That, that partnership was part of what got me here, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah, John, so was was out of, he was part of our team at the VA. Yep. I went out yeah. there when I retired because right. I, you know, I just thought, I thought those guys needed more attention. So I, I came with a, I couldn't get funding because I, my mentor was still at the institution in Seattle where I was training. And the same grant I was writing in Seattle time after time after time I couldn't get, I came here, I wrote for a merit review and for an R01, and I got it the moment I was here. My laboratory was at the VA. I was given essentially a funded salary, unheard of anywhere else I was looking at. It gave me the time and the space and the freedom to do basic science research, become better funded to publish and to start working on transplant and, and move from there. So that actually, that partnership was very unique of all the places around the country that I looked. That is part of what brought me here for whatever that's worth. Fantastic. We're so, glad you came. Ma'am, you had your hand up. Uh, you had a final question. Would you like to ask it? So the question was, what are the criteria that determine how long a, a transplant patient should, might live? John? So I guess it's really the, the response to the treatment. Um, at this point, um, so to give you an example, it, it really varies on the disease. It varies on the stage of the disease, how resistant, what is the reason we're doing it. Um, and that's, so it's a very across the map thing. For very um, high risk, so we never, we never do transplants for someone where the risk of the treatment is higher than the risk of the disease, okay? Um, and so we try to anticipate that as much as possible. Um, 
there still is, just because the nature of the diseases we tend to treat with transplant, there still is a mortality rate of about, in many cases, the national numbers are about 25 to 30 percent. In some programs, like ours, it's more like 15 to 18 percent. That isn't always true, and some years there are uncertainties such as what strain of the flu virus comes along. Um, what other exposures might come along? Is norovirus prevalent in the community that can actually alter things that we can't predict that may alter the survival from year to year? But for the most part, we're doing, uh, we're doing this as a curative therapy. Um, the exception is multimyeloma, where we cannot cure it, but what we can do is put it into remission for a much longer time to allow these innovations to come along so we have a better tool by the time someone needs our treatment again. I'll give you an example. Uh, we just recently had our, one of our first patients transplanted in 1988 come by to come and visit us, or 1989 come wow. and visit us. And that's not an exception. We're seeing more and more patients. In fact, my largest growing clinic is our long-term thrivership clinic that we have. Wow. Okay? Fantastic. So I'm not sure if it fully answered your question that's precisely, good. but we are seeing more and more and more. So trivership is a great point for us to st stop this evening, this phase, and we'll have the opportunity for discussion outside. But now's a good time, I think, to ask Wyatt Beasley to come up and say some words. Wyatt is the chairman of our MCV Foundation, and he's a partner at Williams Mullen. He is more than that. He is a, a dedicated uh, a colleague that has really given a tremendous amount to this community and he's going to say some very good remarks because his dad is sitting right in front of him <laughs> right over here and he's watching him and his dad is on the on the board also and the uh, Beasleys are have a tremendous legacy of medicine in this city and so thank you uh, Wyatt Senior, thank you. Wyatt, not so junior. And close us out, sir. Thank you. So, uh, Peter, thank you. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming tonight on behalf of the MCV Foundation. I know it's an early, cold night, and it, it takes a lot to get out to this, but I think, I hope all of you uh, enjoyed this as much as I did, learning about the uh, progress we've made in the treatment of cancer and the future we have going forward. It's just been highly interesting to me. And frankly, it also underscores the great resource we have here in our city that is our health system, our med school, that are, are really helping making great strides both with research and uh, treatment of cancer. So thank you all for coming. I'd also like to thank Dean Buckley, uh, Dr. Lawrence, Dr. Grant and Dr. McCarthy for their just fantastic discussion. Uh, I learned a lot and I hope you did too. We are gonna ask our panel to uh, uh, go back upstairs uh, so that everybody can have a chance to meet with them after uh, we uh, leave here. Uh, and Dean, if you wanna go ahead and take everybody now so that we can get ahead of the crowd. Uh, one second, we'll finish up. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Ross McKenzie. Uh, he did, frankly, just a fantastic job of putting a human face on this. Uh, <clears throat> as we talk about treatment and where things are going, we can't forget that cancer, the ultimate story of a cancer story is the patient story. 
and the story of the, uh, the treatment that our patients get from their providers, the doctors, nurses, and everybody else. It's very important. Ross, thank you for doing such a great job of relaying that for us. Lastly, I'd like to thank the uh, museum staff, Jamie, Graham, and everyone else for helping us put this together. Uh, it's been a great night, and thank you all for coming. And now I ask everybody to uh, come back upstairs and have a drink and some food and a chance to talk to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you.